Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. I have a lot of catching up to do. There have been a couple of weeks where I haven't been able to do my show, and there are other weeks where I've dedicated them to special shows, for for example, the best and worst of 2023, in addition to my reaction to the Oscar nominees. And there will be more special shows in the next month, especially as the Oscars happen on March 11th, 2024. But... In the meantime, I've got enough of a backlog of movies that I have to review for this show that I'm going to be busy for quite some time. I'm not going to be padding this out with what's coming up next, for instance, which I tend to do when there's a shortage of films that I've seen. But let's get to the movie that is the newest. The first movie I'm the, that I'm going to be reviewing for you is Lisa Frankenstein, which I've heard is supposed to be a combination of Lisa Frank, the designer of the Trapper Keeper folders, and Frankenstein. I don't exactly buy the Lisa Frank part of this film, but it's a film that takes place in 1989, and it is... According to its synopsis, and rest assured, I didn't write this, a coming-of-rage love story. Ugh. When you start with a bad pun like that, it it's, doesn't really fare very well for the film, but I will tend to be fair to this film beyond that. But anyway, it is about a teenager and her crush who happens to be a corpse. After a set of horrific circumstances bring him back to life, the two embark on a journey to find love, happiness, and a few missing body parts. The director of this film is Zelda Williams, who has had some directorial experience before, but this is her debut feature film. And she's also directed a couple of other uh, TV movies, but nothing actually more than an hour, believe it or not. It's also worth noting that Zelda Williams is the daughter of Robin Williams. And I'm not going to mention that again for the rest of this review because, I, I don't know, there, there's something to be said about nepotism, but I've also been taking it easy on some celebrities who have gotten a, a foot in the business by way of nepotism because if you have talent and you have the enthusiasm, you definitely deserve to have a flourishing career regardless of whether or not you've had an advantage of making it into the business based on, well, uh, other family connections, for example. But more on that for another time. I'll just stick to this film. And interestingly enough, the writer of this film, of the story and the screenplay, is Diablo Cody, the Academy Award-winning screenwriter of Juno, who's also written some other somewhat polarizing films. For example, her follow-up to Juno was a campy horror film, horror comedy film in 2009 called Jennifer's Body, which, truth be told, I have not actually seen. It's one of those films I remember when it came out, but A, I wasn't hosting this show back then, and B, I just didn't get around to seeing it. But I have seen some of her other films that she's written, including Young Adult and Tully, which I thought were very smart films. And Lisa Frankenstein, I think, is her first return to high school since Jennifer's Body. And I've been told that Lisa Frankenstein takes place in the same cinematic universe as Jennifer's Body, but that seems to be hearsay. From what I can see of the film, I, 
I guess I can see some sort of connection here and there, but in terms of cinematic universes, I can't comment. But the titular Lisa in this film, whose last name is actually Swallows, not Frankenstein, is played by Catherine Newton, who's become a little bit more recognizable over these last couple of years. The most recent film she's been in is Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, where she played the daughter of Paul Rudd's character. And the part of the corpse here is actually played by Cole Sprouse, who is the twin brother of Dylan Sprouse. And they have had a prolific movie and TV career over the last couple of years. For example, Cole is one of the kids who played Adam Sandler's illegally adopted son in Big Daddy. He also played the part of Ross's son, Ben, on Friends. Uh, Ben Geller, I think his name was. And And here, he and Catherine Newton are sharing a love story, although... Catherine Newton's character is living, and Cole Sprouse's character is deceased. And there's also a very interesting backstory of the character of Lisa. Not only does she have a necrophiliac relationship with this dead person, and the way he kind of comes to life is obviously unrealistic, but you'd be foolish to look for verisimilitude in a movie like this. But I think in the context of the film and how silly the film is, it does kind of make sense. But the character of Lisa has a bit of a backstory where her mother was actually murdered by an axe murderer. And she, her, her father remarried, and she has a stepsister with whom she doesn't have a lot in common per se. But the character of Taffy, uh, Lisa's stepsister, is played by Liza Soberano. And I think that Liza Soberano is actually the best actress in this film. She, uh, I don't know if this is her doing or Diablo Cody's writing of her character, but she is actually probably one of the most multifaceted characters in this film. She's a cheerleader and she's popular, but unlike other high school films, she's not vapid. And I actually give her character a lot of credit for trying to assimilate Lisa into the high school world because she she's a new kid in this community and she also is a bit of a misfit and not just because of her backstory. And there are some other things in this film that make this movie, I, I think, almost unapologetically campy that I could certainly appreciate. But there were other things in this movie that didn't exactly work. For example, uh, I didn't think that the chemistry between Catherine Newton and Cole Sprouse was very palpable or made me exactly want to root for the characters. And maybe this is me as the film critic trying to inject some sort of realism into this film, but... I didn't buy their relationship because when all is said and done, this dead person is a dead person and necrophilia is absolutely disgusting. And there are themes in this film where there are certain characters that are killed by this living dead person and they take certain or the the living dead person takes certain traits of this person uh, who is dead and Lisa actually sews some of these features onto this dead person. And as a result, the dead person 
gets these features. So for example, when he gets a new hand, he's able to play the piano because the victim was a virtuous piano player, for example. And there's another character that dies and they cut off her ears and sew them onto this dead person. And I actually did like that they inject this corpse with life with this tanning bed that's in Lisa's garage that actually her stepsister Taffy actually uses a lot more for the reasons you would think that a cheerleader would use a tanning bed. And this is back in 1989 before tanning beds were considered cancer beds, which they most certainly are today, but probably not as much in the 80s. And there are other plot developments that I think work in a film that takes place in the 80s, but definitely would not work in a film that takes place today in this age of the internet and cell phones and what have you. And there are other plot developments that are silly, but don't really tie into the story. But I do think that Lisa Frankenstein is admirable for its unapologetic silliness and campiness. And also, while I, being a 41-year-old film critic, I don't pay attention to ratings, it is kind of amazing that this film was rated PG-13, especially considering the, the killing that goes on there and also the dissecting of body parts that take place here. It's, it's pretty um, amazing that this film did get a PG-13 rating, but I actually think the PG-13 rating kind of works, although I think we live in this age where I don't think movie ratings exactly matter anymore. But I think that there are some teenage girls these days who would take this movie and maybe watch it at a sleepover. And I have the feeling this film will get a cult following. It, uh, Lisa Frankenstein gets my rating of a checkout. I don't think it is a great movie, and it has a very disgusting premise, but I do think that the the chemistry between Catherine Newton and Cole Sprouse should have been better, and I just didn't really see that chemistry between them. But the character formation of um, Lisa as played by Catherine Newton, I think kind of worked here. And also, Catherine Newton had enough makeup on her to make her understandably seemingly unpopular, but there are some supporting actors here, some of whom do not as great a job as you might expect, but I think Liza Soberano is probably the biggest surprise in this film. And Lisa Frankenstein might be for other people, but admittedly, it's not for me. But I still admire what it did right, because what it did right, it did very well. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a spy thriller comedy by the name of Argyle. And Argyle is a, a movie about a reclusive author who writes espionage novels about a secret agent and a global spy syndicate who realizes the plot of the new book she's writing starts to mirror real-world events in real time. 
And the author of these books is a woman by the name of Ellie Conway, who's played in this film by Bryce Dallas Howard. And I think there are a lot of weaknesses that this film has, but Bryce Dallas Howard, I think, works pretty well in this film, given that she's the unassuming author who finds herself embroiled in this global espionage where she is a reluctant spy alongside a real spy by the name of Alan, excuse me, Aiden Wilde, who's played by Sam Rockwell, who's not exactly the same kind of spy that Ellie Conway's fictional character Argyle, who's played in certain flashbacks, I guess you could call them, by Henry Cavill is in this film, but I think the way that Sam Rockwell and Henry Cavill differentiate in terms of their personalities, even though they have the same job, is actually a, a pretty good development in the story. And Argyle is directed by Matthew Vaughn, who has previously directed a number of films, including Kingsman the Secret Service, Kingsman the Golden Circle, and The King's Man, all of which... I am told, take place in the same cinematic universe. And there are hints, especially with an end credits scene, that Argyle might also take place in the same universe. But that may be elaborated upon in a later film that probably ties together the Kingsman legacy. But The King's Man, which came out in 2021, is a film that I missed. I, I think it came out in late 2021, early 2022, and I remember it, I remember seeing it being advertised, but I did not exactly uh, go out of my way to see the film. There were a lot of other films that I honestly felt more obligated to see first. And the screenwriter of this film, who also wrote the story, is Jason Fuchs. And Jason Fuchs has collaborated with Matthew Vaughn on other occasions, but he also wrote the screenplay for such films as Wonder Woman, uh, It's Chapter 2, and Ice Age Continental Drift, amongst other films. And this is a film that is obviously very em embroiled in the its, its spy story. And there are some interesting twists and turns in the film, particularly involving Ellie Conway's character and how, even though she's not part of the spy world until she meets up with Sam Rockwell's character, Aiden Wilde, she, the backstory to her character, I think probably would have been a great story in and of itself. And there are also some other twists in this film. I think they kind of piled on the twists a little bit too much. There were a few twist in the story involving certain characters in Ellie Conway's life that I think if they had just stuck to that twist, that would have been mind blowing in and of itself. But then it seemed to kind of lose confidence in its storytelling ability where it seemed to think that one twist wasn't enough. But I did think that Bryce Dallas Howard worked well in this film as kind of the reluctant hero and the scenes that she had with Aiden Wilde, or rather Sam Rockwell's character, worked pretty well here. And there are also some interesting supporting performances here by the likes of Brian Cranston, Catherine O'Hara, and Ariana DeBose, in addition to some of the other more imagined characters played by Henry Cavill, Dua Lipa, and John Cena, 
amongst other characters. And Argyle is a film that because it came out in January, I had kind of low expectations. Movies in that premiere in January that aren't nominated for Oscars kind of have that effect on me. But Argyle is a film that I actually kind of liked. I would say that it did lose its, shall we say, confidence in its storytelling ability by putting twist after twist after twist in the film, but I didn't hate it for that. I thought that the action scenes were well-inspired, and actually I kind of thought that Henry Cavill was the least interesting character in this film, which is kind of one of those instances where he tends to be, even when he's playing Superman, but... Argyle is a film that might seem kind of contrived in its place in the Kingsman cinematic universe, but I would be interested to see where Matthew Vaughn kind of goes with this character and these these sets of characters in a later film to the point where I give Argyle my marginal recommendation of a checkout. I did think it was very entertaining. The action sequences were well choreographed and inspired. And I thought that Bryce Dallas Howard in particular played a very good reluctant hero, whereas Sam Rockwell played probably what one would expect to be a more realistic spy. And the two of them worked very well together, not to mention that some of the more imagined sexy spy cases that Bryce Dallas Howard's character thinks up in her writing work pretty well here and are well choreographed. And honestly, Argyle is a film that I expected to hate it. I didn't actually hate it. I thought it has a very well-rounded cast and also it looks sleek and amazing. I wouldn't put it up there with the Kingsman movies, but I still give it a marginal recommendation. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Migration. And this is a film that opened up during the holidays. Specifically, it opened up in theaters on December 22nd, 2023. And I thought it was very interesting that a movie about migrating birds would open up in the winter. Actually, that kind of works. It probably would have been better for a Thanksgiving film, but opening up around Christmas probably did not hurt this film. Actually, I know that it didn't because to date, on a budget of $72 million, it has made $224 million. And so definitely not a bad chunk of change, and it's done a lot better at the box office than Wish. And interestingly enough, even though Wish was made by Disney, Migration is a better film. It's just not probably of the Oscar caliber. But it was released by Illumination Studios, who has who had previously released, amongst other films, the Super Mario Brothers movie, which was also from 2023. But it's probably best known for releasing such franchise films as Despicable Me, The Secret Life of Pets, and the Sing films. So these are films that are well animated, 
they, but they've told stories with the exception of the Despicable Me films we've kind of seen before in other better animated films. And Migration is one of those films that I think will appeal to smaller children. And it has some things that are worth remembering among it, it's stellar animation. But other than that, I wouldn't exactly say that adults would remember this quite as much as kids probably would. But Migration is about a family of ducks who try to convince their overprotective father to go on the vacation of a lifetime. And the father is named Mac, and he's voiced by Kumail Nanjiani. And to Kumail Nanjiani's credit, I actually did not recognize him as one of the voices here. Also, Pam, his wife, is played by Elizabeth Banks. And there are also some other characters in this film who are played by actors who have far more recognizable voices. For example, there's a duck who's a bit senile who's known as Uncle Dan, and he's voiced by Danny DeVito. And there's also a crane who's, whose name is Aaron who's voiced by Carol Kane. And there's also a pigeon with a bum wing whose name is Chump who's, who's voiced by Aquafina. All these other characters are very recognizable, and we've seen this kind of movie about the uptight father who wants to stay in one place and protects his kids so much to a fault. As a matter of fact, that was the plot of Finding Nemo. The only thing is that with Finding Nemo, the clownfish who's voiced by Albert Brooks had a reason to protect his son, uh, and it wasn't just that he was anally retentive. He kind of became that way. And I can't really fault migration for that sort of uh, plot development, but it is one that we have seen before. But the film does get more and more interesting when this family of ducks, whose patriarch is Mac, venture out of their protective pond and actually into other places on their way to Jamaica, including a stop in New York City, which I think is actually one of the best parts of this film, especially when there's an exotic bird that is from Jamaica, whose name is Delroy, who's voiced by Keegan-Michael Key, who actually is not recognizable here because he's putting on a Jamaican accent instead of his own natural voice. But I actually thought that Keegan-Michael Key's character was probably the best voiced character in this film to a certain extent but for them to get this exotic bird out of the clutches of a very nefarious five-star chef in new york city i thought was one of the best parts of this film and there were other good parts of this film too and it is a film that i know kids will love and i i know that my three-year-old niece would adore this film and probably look back at it nostalgically. But me being a semi-embittered film critic, I have seen a lot of these kinds of tropes in the characters before. I do credit this film for being well animated and at least having some heart and sincerity to it, which is why I give my migration my rating of a checkout. It's a film that is well animated. I don't think that the Academy Awards were overlooking migration when they were animating or rather when they were giving out nods to the best animated films of the year. I have no objections to the Academy Awards not nominating this film, but it does work for what it is. It is a pleasant film, and it also is not pandering the same way that I think Illumination's other Minion films can be, and I was taken in by the plot and 
some of the characters. I think the side characters here were probably among the best. The main characters were ones we have seen before in others, but I can't complain about this film. It is unassuming, it's unoffensive, and I liked it, but I just didn't love it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Anyone But You. And Anyone But You is a film that very much like Migration might not be the best film out there, but it was also released like Migration on December 22nd, 2023. And on a budget of $25 million, as of this date, it has grossed $152.9 million, but it's also seeing a resurgence because it's being released around Valentine's Day or being re-released or being expanded into different theaters or rather theaters nationwide again. And it's very easy to see why. Because this is a film about beautiful people with problems, specifically about two beautiful people, a woman named B, who's played by Sidney Sweeney, and a man by the name of Ben, who's played by Glenn Powell, who, after an amazing first date, their fiery attraction to each other turns ice cold until they find themselves unexpectedly reunited at a destination wedding in Australia. So they do what any two mature adults would do, I guess only in the movies, pretend to be a couple. Now, there are some, I was basically reading off of a synopsis there, but there are some words that I injected into that um, synopsis because, yeah, what any two mature adults would do, I would imagine that one of those mature adults would just, gee, I don't know, not attend the wedding maybe? But then again, there are various relations and friendships here and there, and honestly, Glenn Powell and Sidney Sweeney are indeed two beautiful people. So you kind of know, especially when they have their falling out early in the film, after their first date, you know they're going to hook up, and you know they are going to fall in love again, because that's how these movies work. It's the basic formula of Hallmark movies, especially Christmas Hallmark movies. So there really is no surprise here. There's there's just a lot of contrivances here and there, and including the fact that the rest of the wedding party, the bride and the bride, because in a progressive move, there are uh, two women who are getting married in Australia, and I don't have anything against that, but also the parents of the brides and the siblings and the best friends are all conspiring to get the two of them together. 
And there is actually one clever thing that one of the characters says where she says, we don't want them to get together. We want them to jump their bones. Okay. But then some of the other ways in which they, they try to get the two together, they try to fake this gossip with one of the people, either Ben or B, in the general vicinity. So they would try to make them seem like they were overhearing something. Although the acting for their diatribe, where they're trying to convince one to hook up with the other, is very, very fake and very poorly executed. And if you really wanted these two to get together, either for a long-term relationship or, in their words, to jump their bones, I would imagine you'd put a little bit more acting ability in it. Try to be a little bit more like Marlon Brando or Shelley Winters and maybe a little bit less like the dinner theater roster. And from that point on, the movie gets a little bit more predictable. However... There were some things that I liked about the film. One of the things that I absolutely loved about it is Sidney Sweeney. And I think that Sidney Sweeney is going to be a household name from this point on after this film, given how well the film has done so far. But Elizabeth, uh, excuse me, Sidney Sweeney is one of those actresses who I've seen in other movies and TV shows before. For example, she was in a short-lived Netflix uh, series that came out in 2018 that was called Everything Sucks. And I didn't recognize her... Other legendary shows that lasted one season like The Honeymooners or Police Squad, where it died young, but it died great, so to speak. She's also on Euphoria with Zendaya, which is a show that I haven't seen, but I could since I have HBO Max. But there but the reason I say that Sidney Sweeney stood out was because there were some instances in this film where she had to kind of get herself out of a messy situation and she had to use some slapstick to do so. For example, she gets her pants wet when she meets the man of her dreams and she goes into the bathroom and tries to dry them off. And the, the way she executed that was really funny and I was actually pretty impressed. There's another scene where she finds herself getting stuck in front of a first-class passenger seat and the instances that lead up to that were not contrived at all and very well done. And also, I actually found myself laughing the most during those two scenes than I did the entire rest of the movie. I should also note that, that the director of this film is Will Gluck, who had previously directed Easy A, which is a less predictable and much smarter film that 14 years after it came out, I think actually still stands the test of time in terms of being a viable and actually funny uh, high school movie. And Emma Stone, we're still talking about her, and she's still getting great parts years later. So that's a testament to how Will Gluck uh, directed and wrote that film very well. And he's also directed some other more commercial films like the remake of Annie from 2014 and the two Peter Rabbit films. But Anyone But You is a little less, uh, quite a bit less smart than some of those other films, especially Easy A, which is why I give Anyone But You 
my rating for its predictability primarily of a strikeout. It's a great looking film. It has great looking leads in it who have amazing chemistry together. In fact, their chemistry is a little too good because you know how beautiful they are and you know how they got together in the very beginning that you know they're going to end up together at the very end. But I think people who are looking for a cute Valentine's Day movie and are really into the Valentine's Day spirit are going to go to the movies again, maybe see this for the second or third time and get a lot out of this film. I've seen it once. That's enough for me, but I am looking forward to seeing Sidney Sweeney in more things. And I didn't mention Glenn Powell as much. And I actually have seen Glenn Powell in a number of other films, including everybody wants some and hidden figures where he came off as a very good leading man. And rest assured, we're going to see Glenn Powell in more things too. I would not be surprised to see him be the next George Clooney, but kind of like George Clooney, he got his start as a household name in some kind of uninspired romantic comedies. In George Clooney's case, I'm, I'm thinking primarily of movies like One Fine Day, although George Clooney actually got a start in some campy horror films, and he just kept at it, and he was in bigger and better films later on. Obviously, Sidney Sweeney and Glenn Powell are going to meet the same fate if their film careers continue, which based on this film I and its box office performance, I know it will, but let's not kid ourselves. It's not a great movie. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Zone of Interest. And this is a film, one of ten, that is nominated this year for Best Picture. It was released into American theaters, I think on a limited basis, on December 15th. But I didn't get to review this film until after New Year's Day 2024. And man, am I glad I did. This movie has been nominated for five Oscars so far, and all of those Oscars are actually well-deserved. And there is an actress in a leading role in this category who's nominated for this film, Sandra Huller. And I should note that Sandra Huller is also starring in Anatomy of a Fall, which I also saw recently, but I don't have time to review for this show, so I'll try to get to it on my next show. But that is amazing that Sandra Huller is the lead actress in two movies that are nominated for Best Picture. And I'll be honest here, I had never heard of Sandra Huller before I saw either film, but most especially The Zone of Interest because I saw that film first. And Sandra Huller is a German actress, and in this film, she plays the wife of an SS soldier during World War II, and this soldier is named Rudolf Haas, and he's played by Christian Friedel, and they live in a quaint house near Auschwitz. Yeah, they live in a quiet 
semi-suburban house with a beautiful garden where literally feet from them, the most horrific atrocities known to modern man are taking place. And that gives the zone of interest, I think, almost kind of a false sense of security where a lot of the things that you're seeing on screen are mundane, but you know, if you know your history, that terrible, terrible things are happening mostly off screen. And that's what makes this film great and also very, very disturbing at the same time. So in this film, Auschwitz commander Rudolf Haas and his wife Hedwig strive to build a dream life for their family in a house and garden beside the camp. And throughout this film, the story that's being told is about Rudolf's ha- Rudolf Haas's advances within the Nazi regimes. And he is so high up in the ranks of being an SS soldier that he has some discussions with his wife about his advancements and some of the, uh, dare I say it, sacrifices that he has to make for his family that his wife actually mentions to him, why don't you go to Hitler and discuss what you need? Yeah, this guy has pretty much access to Hitler that he can call Hitler up or go to his office and at least talk to him about getting an advancement. And Rudolf Haas, throughout the film, thinks nothing of this. But you know that this is going to end badly, at least for him, if not his family. And you keep watching this film knowing that something bad's going to happen, but you don't know what. And the thing that happens to him that's bad is bad in his circle. It's not bad to the rest of the world or for people who care about what happened in Auschwitz, who is basically every decent person on earth who knows their World War II history. So The Zone of Interest is definitely a chilling film. Interestingly enough, it's completely in German, but the man who directed it, Jonathan Glazer, is actually British. And previously, he has directed a number of other uh, films, including Under the Skin, which is a film that starred Scarlett Johansson. It came out about 10 years ago. And he's also directed some other films. Interestingly enough, one of the first... um, music videos that he directed. That's what I meant to say, music videos, not films. But one of the music videos he directed was Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai, which was nominated which was nominated in 1997 for several MTV Video Music Awards. And that is an iconic film that came out 27 years ago, but it's still amazing what they did with that film. But anyway, he also directed the movie Sexy Beast with Ben Kingsley and also the movie Birth with Nicole Kidman. But this is, from what I gather, his first film that's in a foreign language. It was not nominated for... I'm, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. I, I, I might have made a mistake there. It was also nominated for Best International Feature, which I think is appropriate. And interestingly enough, The Zone of Interest is uh, is nominated for Best Picture and Best International Feature. But the other film that's a foreign film that's nominated for Best Picture, Anatomy of a Fall, is not. 
I don't know if this film is going to win Best Picture. I doubt it, especially compared to The Holdovers and Oppenheimer. But I think it will win Best International Feature. And I think as many people should see this movie as possible because it's not like Schindler's List where the atrocities of the Nazi party happen right before your eyes. But it does serve as a great compliment to films like Schindler's List because it shows that there is some almost unforgivable mundanity that's happening literally next door to the worst atrocities that one could imagine that have happened in some people's lives who are still living today. And for somebody who's living this kind of life, who is concerned about his family and his rank um, in his career and not batting an eyelash to the horrors that are happening literally right next door to him is a, a chapter of World War II that you probably wouldn't read in a history book, but makes a very compelling film right here. I regret that, well, not regret per se, because it's not something that's going to keep me up at night, but I find it unfortunate that I didn't see this film before I made my best of 2023 list, and that kind of happens, but this film probably would have fit in the top 10 somewhere, but I'm not going to redo that list again because that would be tedious and I have so many other films to review. I will say, however, that The Zone of Interest is worthy of its best picture nod in addition to the other four nominations it received, including Best International Feature, which it probably will win. And The Zone of Interest gets my rating of a knockout. It is expertly directed by Jonathan Glazer. This is based on a novel. The author of the book was Martin Amos. Jonathan Glazer took this script and made it into a very compelling movie. It's actually amazing it's based on a novel, not based on a nonfiction book. And The Zone of Interest is a chilling film, and it doesn't end quite the way you would expect a film made by the Western world about Nazis would end. There isn't exactly any catharsis, but you know, it has enough realism in it that you know that there were Nazi and SS soldiers who did live this way, who cared more about their advancement than about the harm they were doing that ultimately would have resulted either in their death or in their trial in Nuremberg. I think it's a fascinating film, and I think it's a very important film that I think people will come back to a decade from now or longer, and if they don't, they should. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. 
This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters. And I'm going to restrict it to in theaters because I don't have time to get into the films that are coming out on streaming for the week of February 11th through February 17th, 2024. And there are quite a few films that are coming out on February 14th, which in this year of our Lord, 2024 is a Wednesday. And one of the films is part of the MCU, or at least part of the section of the Marvel. It's kind of its own Marvel universe that is sort of unofficially part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and is trying to be. And it kind of looked like it was in the Venom films, but then Jared Leto came out with his critically maligned film after that. So it doesn't look very promising. And Madam Web already has a lot of bad press around it. It comes from that same cinematic universe that has been hit or miss. And Dakota Johnson is starring in this film as Cassandra Webb, who develops the power to see the future. Forced to confront revelations about her past, she forges a relationship with three young women bound for powerful destinies if they can all survive a deadly present. Now, judging from the cover, or rather the poster art of this film, it can be presumed that Madame Webb is related to Spider-Man, but, or I mean, not related in terms of uh, Cassandra Webb is Peter Parker's cousin, but she it lives in a world where Spider-Man exists. That's what I presume. But I don't know if what kind of powers Cassandra Webb has that are similar to Spider-Man's or Venom's. I just don't know. Uh, the other co-stars of this film, the the three women who are her confidants, are are played by Sydney Sweeney. Isabella Merced and Celeste O'Connor, all of whom have promising careers ahead of them. But I don't know how this movie's going to be. This is the first time that Dakota Johnson has played an action heroine, especially in a film based on a series of comic books. And my only critique about Dakota Johnson is that she was terrible in the Fifty Shades movies, or rather... I think that she did the best she could with the Fifty Shades movies. They were just terrible. They didn't give her very much to work with. But I've been impressed with just about every other film in which I've seen Dakota Johnson. So I really can't complain all that much. But I don't have high hopes for Madam Web, but I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that's coming out on February 14th is a movie that looks like Oscar bait. The only thing is... It's coming out after the nominations have been released for this year's Oscars. And it's unlikely, being a film that's being released in February, that it would get Oscar attention. But given that the movie Get Out was released in February of 2018, and it did very well for itself, or excuse me, February 2017, and did very well for itself, you never exactly know. But Bob Marley, One Love, is the story about how Reggae icon Bob Marley overcame adversity and the journey behind his revolutionary music. So this is a heavy undertaking portraying an artist who lived a prolific life and died young because of cancer. It's it's crazy because Bob Marley is not only a, a reggae legend, he's a legend, 
period. So there's a lot to uh, live up to for this film. And not every film about a music legend that lived fast and died young is great. One primary example of this is The Doors, the Oliver Stone film starring Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer did an amazing job portraying Jim Morrison, but Oliver Stone took some ham-fisted artistic liberties to not exactly be true to Jim Morrison's legacy, at least according to two out of his three bandmates. But this movie looks like it's at least treating Bob Marley's legacy with a little bit of respect. And Bob Marley in this film is played by a relative newcomer, a newcoming actor by the name of Kingsley Ben-Air, who is British. And he looks like he's at least being respectful to Bob Marley's legacy. Other actors in this film include James Norton, Lashana Lynch, and Michael Gandolfini. So this is a film that I will be seeing, and I'll let you know what I think of Bob Marley One Love on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on Wednesday, February 14th, is a movie that's called What About Love? Compared to Madam Webb and Bob Marley One Love, this film might not get the same kind of reaction or in terms of critical or commercial success, but I'd be interested to see how it goes. It's a movie about two young lovers who change the lives of their parents forever when the parents learn from the joyful experience of their kids and allow themselves to again find their love. The movie stars uh, Sharon Stone, Ian Glenn, Andy Garcia, and Rosabelle Lorente Sellers. Now, this is a film whose theme I'd seen before, but I don't know. Sharon Stone, Andy Garcia, I presume, are the ones who are going to fall in love, and it's probably no wonder there, but I've t- I've kidded about Andy Garcia previously being a killer of franchises because it seems like whenever he an- enters a film that's part of a franchise that's already established itself, it ends up being A, the worst film of the series, and B, the end to the franchise. But I did not say that Andy Garcia is a bad actor. He's not at all. As a matter of fact, when he was in The Godfather 3, I thought he was one of the best things about the film. And apparently so did other people because he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in 1991 for that film at the Oscars. So what about Love is a movie that I might see? It's probably not one of those films I'll go out of my way to see, especially given the backlog of films that I have to review. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And then we have February 16th, which is Friday, the Friday after Valentine's Day. And there are some films that are going to be released into theaters as well, in addition to these other films, which will undoubtedly take over the box office from there. One of the biggest films is No Way Up. And this is a film that is an action-adventure drama that is about uh, characters from different backgrounds who are thrown together when the plane they're traveling on crashes into the Pacific Ocean and a nightmare flight for survival ensues with the air supply running out and dangers creeping in from all sides. So that sounds like a nightmare of a trip, which I have always entertained might happen whenever I've flown a, uh, been a passenger on a plane, but I uh, thank my lucky stars when my plane makes a three-point landing where it's supposed to. But this film stars Phyllis Logan, Cole Meany, Will Attenborough, and James Carroll Jordan, amongst other people. This is a film, No Way Up, that I might see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. 
that just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.